Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where I speak with creative entrepreneurs, artists, and other insanely interesting people to hear their stories learn about their molding moments, tipping points, and spectacular takeoffs. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. In 2006, Ari Mizell was diagnosed with Crohn's disease through a combination of yoga, nutrition, natural supplements, and rigorous exercise, he was able to fight back the symptoms of Crohn's until he was finally able to suspend his medication. He leveraged self-tracking and self-exploration to develop an awareness that led to the breakthroughs in human performance that we discuss in this episode. Ari, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, so you, know, you and I connected by way of our mutual friend, Clay Hebert, and uh, he's at this point got a track record for referring phenomenal people to me. So uh, I want to ask you my very first question, uh, and that is, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your background, and how that has brought you to uh, the work that you're doing today? Sure. Uh, so I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, uh, mostly in tech stuff, starting when I was 12 with a website design company. And after college, I started working in construction. Uh, I was in upstate New York, in, in Binghamton, New York, and I, I started developing these old lofts built, well, these old cigar warehouses actually into lofts. And uh, I basically said that anybody who worked on the job had to teach me their trade. So I spent the next three years learning and doing every construction trade there is and really learned how to become a builder and a real estate developer, which is, which is well, what I am today, basically, as a real estate developer. But about eight years ago, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, which is a chronic inflammatory condition that affects the digestive tract. It's very, very painful and not very well understood and considered to be incurable. So I was taking about 16 pills a day and getting pretty much sicker every day and got to a very low point in my journey where I was in the hospital and really didn't think I was going to make it out alive. So after that, I went on this long journey of self-tracking and self-experimentation and got off my meds after four months and then went on to compete in my first triathlon about two months later. So I, I that was in a way the end of the journey, but it was really the start of the journey because what I realized while I was then training for Ironman France was that I had figured out the nutrition, I'd figured out the supplements, and I'd figured out the fitness aspects of what was going on with my illness, but there was still this big element of stress and stress was affecting my life and my illness. And I know it was affecting a lot of people as well. So my response to that was to, oddly enough, was to create a system of productivity, which I called less doing as in less doing more living to help people optimize, automate and outsource everything in their lives, including their health in order to reclaim their minds, do the things that they actually want to do and be more effective and less doing was born out of that. And now, in addition to being a real estate developer, I 
have online courses and I have my, my book just came out recently on the less doing book. And I've been coaching some really incredible individuals on improving human performance basically ever since. Mm -hmm. All right. So there's a a ton of stuff here and, uh, I want to go back and and kind of tear it all apart and dig deeper into it. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, it's funny because you mentioned that you've been an entrepreneur since you were 12 years old. And, you know, part of me always wonders if certain people are born with that and if it's just what's meant to be, you know, I've had a lot of people here who've said at a very early age, they had sort of inklings of what their life was going to look like or the premonition that they were meant to be an entrepreneur. And I'm really curious uh, if, you know, in your own experience, you think that is something that can be cultivated or is, is that something that you're just naturally born with? And if it is something that can be cultivated, how do you do it? Like, what are the key characteristics of that? Yes, it's a it's a really good question, and I actually have pretty recently kind of changed my feeling on it. So, I believe that there is an innate sort of inborn ability to be an entrepreneur. Uh, but honestly, I think that part of that is just being a risk taker in some ways, and then the rest of it really does have to be cultivated and trained to some extent. Mm-hmm. But what I say that I recently sort of changed my mind on that a little bit is that I've come to realize especially now nowadays with technology and startups and app building and the way that people sort of do business, there's a big difference between starting a company and owning your own job. And in a lot of ways, I feel like what I've done in my you know six or seven companies is really owning my own job. So I don't know if I could consider myself like a really successful entrepreneur per se. I, I, I believe that I've been successful in the things that I've done. But, you know, if someone were to ask me to like take over this company and take it to, you know, a hundred million dollar exit, I don't know if I'd have the faintest idea how to do that. Whereas I've always just felt like owning my own job, not having a boss and sort of doing what I do really, really well is, is what's made me what I am today. And, and to that extent, my first company was an accident. I was designing websites, or I was playing around with it. I was 12 years old, playing around with HTML, designed a website for my father's art gallery. And one of his colleagues came in one day, and, and my dad was showing off his new website, which was, you know, a kind of a cool thing back then, I guess, you know, it's, it, 19 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the guy said, you know, oh, I'd love, I'd love to do that too. You know, how, how, would you do it for me for $500? And I said, yes. And, <laughs> and, and that was the first of 150 websites. That uh-huh. would, you know. But again, did I have a company? I mean, I had a couple friends who ended up working for me doing coding and stuff like that. But I don't think that I built some empire. I think that I was really owning my own job. So is that sort of like a roundabout way of answering your question? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, you know, I, I want to dig deeper into something. You know, this was when you were really young, when you were 12 years old. And I'm really curious, especially in, in terms of, of sort of child development uh, around this, because, you know, we have so many p- parents who listen to our show. You, there's a couple of questions that come from me. This one is kind of how your view on all of this has been shaped uh, based on the fact that you have been an entrepreneur since you're really a teenager, which is is actually not normal. I think that 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 you're an anomaly, but I think we're seeing more and more of that, given the the interesting gap between technology and creativity that's being narrowed. And the reason this is fresh on my mind um, is I, I just spent two days with a cousin. And it was really interesting to hear her kids have this very clear vision of what they want to do. One of them said, I want to be a video game developer. The other said, I want to be an animator. And I asked him, I was like, so have you made your first video game? And he said, no. I said, why not? He said, I don't know how. I said, so Google it. <laughs> and, and I'm really curious kind of you know, what your thoughts are on 
um, you know, parenting and entrepreneurship and, and how we encourage it and how we cultivate it in our children and kind of how that has shaped your entire view on all of this. So I, there's a statistic that I love that I'm, I'm, I'm remiss to find the source for, and I think it might be from Nifty, the, um, you know, the National Foundation for Teaching Entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. But when I was 15, I think I saw this quote. And basically what it said was that 75% of young entrepreneurs come from a household where the mother is overbearing and the father is physically or emotionally absent. So that sounds very, very negative. And um, I grew up in a household where I, I wouldn't say that it fit quite in those criteria, but I have a Jewish mother, so there's <laughs> there's something to that. And my father, who is a, a great entrepreneur in his own right, was fair. I mean, he was very physically present, but he was very emotionally absent. Um, so, does that mean that I was trying to get out from under the control of my mother and trying to impress my father? Probably. And there's probably a psychological element to that. And on the face of it, that sounds like a really weird way to raise a kid, right? If you were trying to do that. Um, but I mean, I think I turned out okay. And I have a really good relationship with my parents still, and they're very much part of our lives. So uh, I don't know if it's something that you can necessarily forcibly cultivate. I think what's the most, I, honestly, and I have three young children, very, very young children. So they're not at this point yet. But I think that the best thing that we can do is to foster creativity. Mm -hmm. And creativity, in my mind, is the thing that makes it so somebody doesn't say this can't be done because there's maybe there's another way. It's also the person who says, doesn't say I can't do it because maybe there's another way. <laughs> and they're the ones who come up with those great ideas and run with them. So they say that you cannot train creativity. I don't believe that's true. And I think that there's some studies and some research that are showing that they, that actually may not be true, but oddly enough, the uh, the Montessori school system, which is for you know three and four year olds and maybe five year olds now, which is known for really fostering creativity because it's very child led and they kind of like decide what they want to do for a certain amount of time and and whatnot. The Montessori and this is again this is three and four year olds for the most part has produced a very very large percentage of some of the top executives in the current business world, including both founders of Google, mm -hmm. a lot of the top guys at Apple. Like there's all of these people who are really successful and they're showing a link back to their ability to have had their creativity fostered. So again, that's, that's my thing. And, and if that makes my kids into artists or uh, financial analysts, maybe I hope not though, honestly, um, or entrepreneurs, like that's, that's the best thing that I think that we can do is to foster that creativity. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole whole debate of how you do that in education, I mean, we could probably have about a two hour conversation just about that. Uh, it, it, you don't want to get me started on an education rant. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be right there with you. Uh, well, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, one of the things that you brought up earlier is that you worked in construction and you're really a builder. And, you know, I, I think that building is really a profound metaphor for anything that we're doing in the world today, whether we're artists, we're, whether we're creatives. And, you know, I jokingly say that, you know, I've learned more about construction and building than I ever wanted to in my life after we just finished our last conference because of the fact that I've made numerous Home Depot visits and I felt like an idiot in that place. But, um, there were a couple of things you said about that that really uh, kind of intrigued me. One is, you know, you kind of see the world through the eyes of a builder. But the other thing is that you went and you basically made it a point to learn every job. And I'm really curious how that's all played itself out uh, in the way you build companies, in the way you manage people. 
And, and, and what are the takeaways for us, uh, for those of us who are listening? So that, that was my number one piece of advice when I was younger and I was mentoring or coaching or offering advice to other entrepreneurs or young entrepreneurs was that you need to learn and have had an experience with every job required to run your company from the bottom to the top. And there's a number of reasons for that. When I was, so I started this project in Binghamton when I was 20 years old. Okay. So I didn't know anything about construction. By the way, this is like talking about being thrown off a cliff, like to see if you could fly. I graduated from Wharton, the you know the number one business school in the world. I, I barely graduated, although I did it a year early and I had a double major and a double minor, but I was not a good student by any means. And I majored in real estate and I took a real estate development class. That doesn't mean anything when it comes to putting a hammer to a nail <laughs> um, or arguing with somebody about how long it's actually going to take to drywall a room or repipe uh, you know, a building. Any of that stuff is something that you can only learn by doing. And more importantly, I had at least some foresight to realize that I had guys working for me who had been you know, third-generation Masons who were in their 60s, and they weren't going to take any crap from me. So the only way that I was going to, A, learn – and B, get any respect at all and not be totally taken advantage of was to have them teach me something. Mm -hmm. So I've always, I've always been a sponge for knowledge. And I think that one of the things, you know, you, you want to talk about an education rant. I can go on a rant with you if you want about this whole head down thing that people think it's like a badge of honor to be like, oh, I can't deal with it right now. I'm, I'm just totally, I'm head down. I'm head down. Like they have their head in their computer whether it's programming or researching or doing whatever the hell they think they're doing, it's not sustainable. It doesn't make you a good person. It doesn't make you a good business person. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's nothing to be proud of about spending 80 hours a week with your head buried in a computer. I'm sorry. It doesn't make for, it, it doesn't make for a better offering to the world. So you need to learn all the time. That's all we can do is learn everything, everywhere, and constantly be improving ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love what you said about, you know, knowing how to do every single job that's required to run your company. And it, it's funny because, you know, we live in a world where there are people constantly telling you to outsource everything, which is really, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting contradiction. But, you know, wh- one of the things that my, my friend, you know, who, told, who was here told me, you know, we were making these chalkboard sandwich signs in our garage uh, for, our, for our event. And he said, you know, he said, I know this is a huge hassle and you're not good at any of this. But he said, think about it this way. He said, when you're running a team of people and you've done this on the budget that you've done it and somebody comes to you and tells you that they can't do it, you can say that's BS because I know it can be done. Like it it gives you a certain knowledge of what's possible that wouldn't exist if you didn't do all of those jobs. Absolutely. And I, you know, so I had a very like Howard Rourke moment, you know, from, from, uh, the fountainhead, mm-hmm. uh, where I was in a suit and I walked onto a job site. I, 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 by the way, I can count on one hand how many times a year I wear a suit. Um, but I was wearing a suit and I happened to go onto a job site that we were doing a renovation on. And somebody was saying that they couldn't do something that had to do with, uh, getting a pipe. Basically it was literally like right out of fountainhead. They had to get this pipe through this particular space and they couldn't do it. And I took the welding torch out of the guy's hand and did it in a suit. So <laughs> it's like, you know, absolutely. You have to, you have to know this stuff because whether people want to or not, everyone, not, I'm sorry, not everyone, but there's always going to be people that are looking to take advantage or m- more likely cut corners. Mm-hmm. And there's no way for you to know unless you've done it yeah. or been there or seen it. 
Yeah, no doubt. I mean, and, and I guess there's one other thing I'd add to that. You know, throughout the process uh, of doing one of the hardest projects I've ever done, every time I ran up against a wall uh, and felt like I couldn't do it, my business partner, Greg Hartle, would just reply and say, figure it out. And it, it's amazing kind of how you think you've run against a, up against a wall and somehow you still figure out solutions. Yeah, you know, and so this is is it's interesting that you you sort of frame it that way because I <laughs> I um the the overarching framework for my productivity system for less doing is to optimize, automate and outsource. And it's it's in that order because what I tell people is if you just outsource something that's inefficient, it doesn't make it more efficient at all. Um so you have to start by optimizing it and then you can look at automation and then if there's anything left, that's when you can look at outsourcing. So I have never outsource something that I haven't done myself first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a wise observation. So I, th- I think that makes actually a perfect transition. Um, well, let, let's get into really what kind of intrigued me about your story and, and what landed you here at The Unmistakable Creative. You know, Clay told me that you had managed to cure Crohn's, but I, I want to talk to you kind of about um, the experience of going through Crohn's. I mean, as somebody who was diagnosed with IBS in my 20s, uh, I, can, I can definitely relate. That was the other thing that intrigued me. I was like, okay, well, if you can cure Crohn's, I'm very curious what happened here. Um, I mean, it seems to me that this was really sort of a molding moment in your life, and it's clear that you're a very ambitious person. And, uh, you know, what I'm very curious about first is sort of the mental capacity and, and the mental battle uh, that goes on when you're diagnosed with an illness like that, because I think for me that the biggest frustration, and it's something I'm sure you've experienced, is when the doctors just put you on a bunch of pills and say, "Hey, by the way, there's no cure. Uh, you just have to live with this." And and you know the the reason I'm asking this question is that often when we when we get to these moments, they can become catalysts to either bring about positive change or they can lead us into a downward spiral. Uh, so I, I'm curious, I mean, how you managed to, one, turn it into something positive, and, and two, how other people can think about moments like this in their lives. Well, you know, the unfortunate answer is that a lot of times you have to get to that low point before you can do it. Mm-hmm. And I've seen this in so many people now. I, I've replicated my results, by the way, in 15 people now with Crohn's, and I've worked with people with, with IBS and colitis and even diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis and all these other inflammatory conditions now. But inflammation is a part of everybody's life. And unfortunately, for a lot of reasons in our current society having to do with stress and food, uh, chronic inflammation is becoming a, a really, really major thing. So that mindset, you know, unfortunately – a lot of times you really do have to get to that low, low, low point where you say to yourself, you know, maybe you say to yourself, I'm going to die if I don't do something. Uh, and it takes those wake up calls a lot of times, honestly. Uh, so I've heard so many stories of people with like Lyme disease, for instance, which has mm-hmm. neurological effects. So I have a friend, Ben, who uh, had Lyme so bad in his brain, actually, that he said he couldn't tie his shoes, you know, and, and you, to me, that's, you know, I, yes, I, I, I've overcome Crohn's disease, but to me, that's like, how did you get out of that hole? You, know, mm-hmm. you couldn't tie your shoes, but you figured out a plan to get yourself clear of Lyme, which he did, by the way. So you have to, A, if you're not sick, realize that you have to take care of yourself and that not only will you be taking care of yourself, but you'll actually be making yourself perform better, which Again, some people don't place a huge importance on that. Some people do. When you realize what you are capable of, when you take care of yourself and do the best you can for yourself, 
it's pretty amazing. So yes, the, the, this is the big problem with Crohn's is that it's a young person's disease. Mm-hmm. So it, it hits people at a really crappy part of their lives when they don't want to be dealing with having to go to the bathroom, you know, 14 times a day or, or being in pain. And they certainly don't want to discuss it with anybody. So it is really tough, you know, and I don't have like a, a really, I don't have a great answer for you, except that learning to check in with yourself and be resilient and training your, your nervous system and your stress response is something that and people should start when they're kids, mm-hmm. honestly, learning how to breathe properly, learning how to just take a moment and think about what's actually going on and try to see it from a different perspective. Just, just giving yourself the space for a second to be able to, you know, put your hand out and say, I just need like a second just to take a minute because we don't stop. People don't stop. And that's where I hear every day that people are overwhelmed. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. Um, you talk about taking care of yourself. Uh, you know, I was talking to my friend Meg Warden, who who we've had here, and you know, her talk at our event was around this. Um, but but it wasn't focused specifically on nutrition. A lot of it was around the mental aspect. She said, you know, I don't need to give you ten tips on what to eat. She's like, you guys know what to eat. But we were talking, and I told her, I said, you know, it was interesting. The month before our event, I told her, I said, I decided to give up alcohol because I wanted to show up at the event with every bit of energy I had and every ounce of, you know, passion I had for this, this project. And she said, look what you accomplished without drinking for a month. And she told me, she said, every time she is lacking new clients or every time something is, is not going well in her business, she stops drinking. And I never thought about the, the, the sort of profound impact of something that simple and how it would, you know, play out in so much of my life. And I thought, well, Maybe I should make this a once a week practice and only limit myself to one, you know, once a week drinking and see what happens to the business. Um, I just, you know, when, when she put it that way, suddenly it, 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 something, a light bulb went off when I said, wow, you're right. Look what I accomplished after not drinking for a month. Yeah. You know, people have this problem. It's a willpower thing, honestly, where we tend to reward good behavior with something bad, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like having, having a piece of pizza, not that I, I mean, I kind of love pizza, but not, not that having, I mean, but like having a piece of pizza after a long run, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's, it's, it's sort of like a, it's a paradox of the, the future self and the current self. And, and the way that we justify that is, is really weird. And we have a lot of leftover problems in our brains that made a lot of sense when we were running around like cavemen and women, but really don't make a lot of sense now. And we, and we can control those things and learn to control them. And, and we really have to. So the, the drinking one is really interesting. I, when I got sick, right before I got sick, I was uh, about 40 pounds heavier than I am now. I was smoking a pack a day. I was eating fast food twice a day. And I was drinking a lot because I would basically I'd go out with my crew after work every day and drink. And I was 20 years old and I, you know, I'd just come out of college, but I still, I wasn't like in, I wasn't that kind of person. And I just sort of fell into this lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And then of course I got really sick. So when you see, and quite frankly, things were not going great business wise until I got out of the place that I was in physically and mentally. And then they really started to take off. And less doing came out of, I mean, it was like a spark, you know, and it just created this whole movement and this, and a book and all this stuff that I do now out of being, it's, I I see the most direct relationship because everything that I do now is because I'm healthy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's not even like, Oh, I, I was able to do this because I'm healthy. It's literally because I'm healthy. I'm doing this stuff. 
That's yeah. what it came out of. So that's, it's, it's really powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, I think it's the foundational piece of, of everything that, you know, we do. Uh, it's funny to listen to you tell this story. It's almost like we've lived parallel lives because, you know, mine was a story of IBS and then discovering surfing and that did wonders for the IBS. But the reason I always say that surfing is the foundation for everything I do is because it made me healthy. It made me take how I feel so much more seriously. And that started to play itself out in, in the work that I do today. Well, yeah, of course. And, and, you know, it's, it's just like taking care of your instrument in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, you're not going to be able to play violin with a broken string. You're not going to be able to write with a pen with no ink, mm -hmm. you know? So why should our bodies work with no energy and no focus and, and broken parts? Yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Well, I think that that uh, that makes a perfect transition to talking about what I think everybody is probably very curious about by this point in our conversation, which is, uh, you know, be going from where you were at with Crohn's to all of this self-tracking and, and all the self-exploration and, and kind of how that leads to the art of less doing. So how we bring all of these principles into our lives so that we can optimize, automate uh, and start to outsource things. I'd love to really get into uh, quite a bit of depth around this and, and how it, it applies to our lives on a day-to-day basis. Sure. Okay. Well, so there are nine fundamentals to the system. And as I said, that sort of overarching framework is to optimize, automate, and outsource. So the first two are the more, the, I guess, the meatiest parts of less doing and they really set the stage for the other stuff which is honestly there's a lot of technology and things that come later but as i said you have to start from a point of being more efficient so the first part the first fundamental is the 80 20 rule which is obviously not mine and a lot of people have a reaction when they see that and i don't use anything (laughs) in general i tend to use principles and theories in ways that they were not originally intended. So 80-20 rule, everyone knows it from Tim Ferriss. And, you know, if you're a student of history, then you know that it's from 107-year-old principle, Pareto's principle, or Pareto's law from Italy. Um, It's about resource allocation. But for me, it is a constant reminder to always be self-tracking. So, for instance... Do you remember, really quick, you know, tell me if you can remember. You don't have to tell me what it is. Just remember what you had for breakfast this morning. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you know how many emails you sent last Tuesday? No. I have no idea. Okay. Okay, good. <laughs> every now and then, very rarely, but every now and then someone has that answer, which is always <laughs> impressive. So I use, every time I give a talk, I ask those questions. And, you know, if I give a talk to 100 people in a room, 95 of those people will raise their hand about the breakfast question and none usually – you know, I've had out of a thousand people or two thousand people, I think I've had two people know about the, the email. But most people don't know that. So then it's like, okay, well, what's the point? Well, the truth is, is that it's so easy now to track all this stuff that we do that why not? Because even if you're not a data scientist, which I am certainly not, but I used my data to, to overcome an incurable illness, if you collect enough data, something will pop. You know, and something as basic as rescue time. So you, are you familiar with rescue time? Uh, yes, I am. Okay, okay. So for those who are not, rescue time is an app that runs on your computer. And it just sits there and it will document sort of how you spend your time. And you look at it after a week and it's going to tell you, you spent seven hours on email and you spent three hours on Facebook, you know, maybe. And, you know, 17 hours on Excel or whatever you're doing. But it will also tell you Tuesday was your most productive day and Wednesday was your least productive day which you know, may or may not be a surprise to some people, but that's usable information because we can start to not only bring that awareness back to ourselves, but maybe mold our weeks around that and the things that we do. You know, I've learned some amazing things about myself, such as I can only write creatively after 9 o'clock at night. Uh, I don't like making phone calls before noon. You know, we're speaking here. You're my first phone call of the day. Uh, we started at noon. I don't, mm-hmm. I, I don't know why, actually. I just know that I'm not myself before noon on the phone I'm shorter with people. I'm not as like interactive. I just don't get the same results. So as much as I can, I try to push off all my calls till afternoon and I do other work in the morning. And on a very basic level, that's great information. You know, you can track the work, the, the steps that you've taken, the food you've eaten, the sleep that you've had, the sex that you've had. You can track, you can track anything. You can track your blood, you know, with inside tracker or wellness FX. So all this stuff nowadays can be tracked and that's your data. 
And people are just so blissfully unaware. And because of all the stuff that's going on in our lives, we lose that self-awareness. And if you don't have self-awareness, you don't have cause and effect. You don't know why you're feeling crappy at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And it could have been because you had a bad meeting. It could have been because you didn't sleep well. It could have been because you ate something you shouldn't have. You don't know why you're being so aggressive in the car in the morning. You, don't, you just don't know this stuff. And that's, that's too bad because it's really great information. So you can start to call that awareness with the tracking information. But then what that allows you to do on a better level, on a higher level, is to do something I call creating the manual of you. And this is one of the biggest things that I push with people, this and the external brain, which I'll also talk about. But creating the manual of you was an amazing discovery for me. Every one of us, every one of you, every one of us goes through a process on a daily basis, usually, and if not daily, then weekly or monthly. But there are processes that you do all the time. And we have these things in our brains called heuristics, which is basically our brain's shortcuts, and it's the way that our brains can be lazy and not use as much inform- um, energy as it doesn't want to. It's, it tries to be efficient, even though our brains use about 20% of the energy in our bodies. So we have these heuristics. So my favorite example, which affects almost everybody, is pay a bill. So if I had a bill in my hands right now, and I were to say to you, pay this bill, you would have absolutely no idea, I hope, how to do that for me. And I wouldn't have any idea how to do that for you. So the first time I looked at, and, and by the way, when I pay a bill, you know, I go in online and I do it. And I could probably be listening to music or talking on the phone and just do it. And it takes me seven, eight minutes each time, whatever it is. And it just happens. And that's the problem is that people are watching their lives or not even less. They're just along for the ride and they're not in it. So I stopped and I looked at the process required to pay a bill on a very granular level. And the first time I did it, it was 27 steps. So that's not a crazy number because a lot of times I see that with people. And that 27 steps included go to the banking website, log in with this username and password, go to the pay section, do this, do this, do this. And then with the physical bill, scan, scan it and put it into Dropbox and then send it to my accountant and then turn it into a PD, all this stuff. 27 steps. And again, maybe that took me seven minutes, but it's 27 steps. So I wrote those down. I looked at it. And right away, I could say, okay, these two steps are redundant. This step doesn't really need to happen. There's a hole between 13 and 14 that I got to make sense of. And okay, so I got it down to 20 steps or something. And then I was able to look at that and say, oh, well, you know, if I use WAPWOLF, I can put the full, I can scan it to Dropbox and then it will automatically convert it to PDF, put it in Evernote and send it to my accountant. So there's three steps I don't have to deal with. And so on and so forth. I got to 14 steps. So if I had done nothing else, that's amazing. I, went for, I basically cut the process in half and made it more efficient. But those 14 steps I then sent to a virtual assistant. And the virtual assistant doesn't know who I am. So, you know, in my case, I use an on-demand service, which I can tell you more about if you want. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they don't know me. They don't know how I'd like to do things. They just got a 14-step process, a checklist. And they did it, but they couldn't. They wrote back to me and said, I'm really sorry, sir, but I couldn't understand how you got from step seven to step eight. And of course, I look at that and I'm like, oh, well, I, you know, that was just a shortcut in my brain, of course. Why would I have to explain that? So yes, I have to explain that now. And after a couple iterations of that, that process of paying a bill is now nine steps. And it's so perfect and so efficient and so well explained that I have had it executed by over 300 different assistants with no experience with me and no errors. And it's something now that all I have to do is take a picture of a bill when it comes in and throw it out. Mm -hmm. So 
that's incredible, you know, and that applies to so many things in my life. I have 57 of those processes now written down in Evernote. Everything from how I edit a podcast to transcribing it to doing video work and social media. And I even, when I used to live in New York City, paying a parking ticket, that was a process that was able to be done by a virtual assistant. So it really frees up, you know, and makes you realize that 95% of the things that you do on a daily basis can be done by other people mm-hmm. or other things. And it's that 5% that is your individual genius that you should be able to make your 100% and you know, offer to the world. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> that's, uh, that's really some mind-blowing stuff. You know, it, it's interesting uh, to, to hear you describe it. Some, somebody told me once, you know, one of the things that we do, so much of the work that we do on a daily basis is really repetitive. And, you know, you mentioned editing podcasts and, you know, we've done 400 plus episodes in five years. And one of the things that I realized is that even though it's the same process over and over again, when I go through this checklist that I have in Evernote, it's a thousand times more efficient, mm-hmm. even though I've done it a hundred times. But if I, if I look at it and I know the steps, it's just, you know, step by step. When I do that, everything goes a lot more smoothly. And I notice when I don't follow it, I'm not nearly as efficient. And somebody told me once they said that it seems really simple, but the thing is that you're actually using brain power that could be used for something creative when you're wasting, you know, when you waste it on something like that you do on a repet, you know, you do repetitively. I mean, absolutely. And, you know, Surgeons and commercial airline pilots use checklists. Doesn't yeah. matter how many thousands of times they've done it, they use checklists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, you know, I, I read about that in uh, Atul Gawande's book, the the Checklist Manifesto, and it was mind blowing. That really kind of changed my my entire perspective on this. So, you know, one thing I, I want to go back to, you know, you mentioned self tracking and and you mentioned a, a few apps and services, and I'm sure the question is, hey, well, what are those? Uh, you know, you mentioned Rescue Time, Wellness FX. I'm curious, you know, what what are the other sort of tools that that help you to to quantify this? And then, you know, I think it's one thing to collect all this data. Uh, but you know, for some people they're going to be like, okay, great. I'm collecting all this data. What do I do with it? How do I, how do I use it? You know, and, and really cultivate awareness of it to make real change that is lasting and impactful. Well, okay. So the, the, the other thing that I had mentioned, the big, the other big thing, Mm -hmm. which I'm, I push a lot is what I call creating the external brain. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is that the human brain is really good at coming up with ideas, but it's terrible at holding on to them. And at that point, it's pretty bad at executing upon them. So you need to get ideas out of your head as quickly as possible without any judgment or hesitation or bias and get them out of your head. And the, the best thing that I recommend for people that works generally is Evernote. You know, so I know that your listeners and I know you know Evernote. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows Evernote pretty much yep. at this point. And it's wonderful. Evernote is great. It's free. syncs across every platform. You can... You can take notes in the form of text or pictures or web clippings or, you know, pretty much anything. So ideas need flow. And I love to give this example that there was an episode of The Simpsons where Mr. Burns was diagnosed with everything. Mm-hmm. And the, he was at the Mayo Clinic and the doctor had this little doorway and all the little fuzzy animals that represented various bacteria and viruses. And they couldn't get through the door, which is why he wasn't getting sick. Ideas are very similar. If you have an idea in your head, get it out of your head because for every nine, you know, quote unquote, bad ideas that you put down there, 
The 10th one might be a great one, either because those nine ideas added up to the good one or because they simply got out of the way of that good idea. And yes, it does work that way. So Evernote is really great for this because it's searchable, which is a very nice thing. It's safe in archive, so you can have sort of a little bit of peace of mind. And the, the thing is, is that you don't have to know if it's a good or a bad idea. And you can't possibly know if it's a relevant idea mm-hmm. because you just they don't have the, the possible crystal ball to know that. So where Evernote really shines is if you are using uh, Google or, or, well, of course, if you're using Google, but if you're using Chrome or Firefox or, or any of those, those browsers and you have the Google... I'm sorry, the Evernote Web Clipper. So that makes it so that you can just click one button and capture the video you're looking at or the article or the podcast, wherever it might be. As you begin to use it and overuse it, which I recommend because it's a free service, it'll start to show you relevant notes from your Evernote. And this is where the aha moments come out every day for me. Because, like, for instance, I just saw an article on something with, uh, (laughs) well, you, you, having had IBS, you'll appreciate this. So the, the new hot thing in digestive disorders is FMTs, which stands for fecal microbiota transplants. You know anything about them? No, I don't. <laughs> okay, so it is literally taking the healthy poop from somebody and putting it into somebody who's unhealthy wow. so that you repopulate their microbiome, and they're seeing results in hours. It's unbelievable how simple and cheap and quick and effective it is to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so there's a lot. There's been a lot of research on it lately. So I, I clipped something the other day, and an article popped up that I clipped four months ago, and another one from two years ago that neither one of them mentioned fecal microbiota transplants, but they were related to something in the article. And suddenly it was as if I had pulled this information from the depths of my mind in a way that you really neurologically couldn't do. Even some of the best memory people in the world couldn't do that. And it wouldn't be an efficient use of their brains anyway. Mm-hmm. But now I have this like amazing amount of information right in front of me, right there, right what I was looking for when I wanted it. And you know, maybe I had this idea then and I didn't know why, but I wrote it down or I captured it because it was interesting. And now all of a sudden it's here. And it just kind of works that way because it's true. There's a lot of stuff in our brains that we don't ever need or won't ever need. Um, you know, this is a really, really efficient way to do it. And it's just a peace of mind that you can have these ideas out there. When I was in college, or when I was in high school actually, I was getting a new business idea every week. And I'd say most of them were pretty terrible. <laughs> But I wrote them down, you know, and I have this composition notebook, the black and white ones, and has all these ideas in it. Incidentally, I, uh, I had the idea, I think I had the idea first, to put a, a disposable clear plastic protector on the bottoms of, of CDs so that if you scratched it, you just peeled it off and the CD was fine. Mm-hmm. And I got the idea for that one day. I was riding on my dirt bike, and they have those peel-off things on the dirt bike uh, goggles in case you get mud, so you just peel it off and keep going. Um, but anyway, that was one of my ideas and Nito ended up doing that and, you know, nobody uses CDs now anyway, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) But in in college, those ideas came less frequently, like once a month. And then after college, they literally just stopped and I kind of accepted that I was like out of creativity or out of imagination. But of course I was just working my ass off and not giving myself the chance to breathe, much less think of new ideas. Mm -hmm. So some really amazing things can open up to you if you start to take advantage of this external brain. And this is just the, the base layer of it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Really, really, uh, I, I love it. I mean, this is, this is just pure gold. 
Uh, you know, it's interesting. One of the questions I have for you around sort of using Evernote, uh, you know, because I, I do a bit of both. Um, you know, I went back to pen and paper, oddly enough, uh, for a while, and, and I still do. I, I do all my writing in my moleskin first, and I transfer it to to some sort of, you know, you know, it could be Evernote, it could be Mac Journal, whatever it is. And and part of the reason I did that was because I felt that we lived in such a hyper-connected world that it wasn't giving my mind time to slow down. I'm really curious to hear your perspective on this, given that you're such a huge fan of Evernote. The, uh, as far as... Like the virtues of, of using pen and paper and going analog uh, yeah, uh, sure. in, in a digital world. So, okay, well, it, it kind of depends on the person. Right. So, you know, Evernote's on every, it's, it's everywhere. It's on, uh, on your computer, it's on the web, it's on your phone, it's, it's everywhere. But, you know, it's not everywhere, everywhere, because there are certain situations where it's not appropriate to necessarily whip out your phone and take notes on something. Of course, some people are also more old school like that, or they just like the ephemeral feel of using pen and paper, and that's totally fine. It mm-hmm. works for some people, but you don't get that searchability. You don't get that sort right. of brain aspect. But again, I'd rather people get the ideas out than not. So if you just simply wrote down the ideas, you had a little notebook with you, and you wrote down ideas as you came to them, that would be great, and I would be very happy with that. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, fortunately, there's some really, really easy ways now to deal with that. One of which is that you know Evernote has a whole series of um, the the moleskin, moleskine, whatever uh, notebooks that you can write in and then scan with your phone or, or tag them. But there's actually a really cool company now called um, Mod. I think it's called Mod Notebooks, uh-huh. and you fill it out. Uh, with whatever you want, doodles, writing, whatever, and it has the postage right on the back of it. So you, once you're done, you just mail it to them, and then they scan it all and upload it to Evernote. <laughs> I think I said I read about that on Fast Company. Yeah, but and then even beyond that, I, I mean, I, I I practice what I preach. I have something in my shower called Aquanotes. Mm-hmm. I've heard of that. Yeah, so it's a waterproof postage pad, and people get great ideas in the shower. They actually funded a study at Stanford to prove that, which I think is insane, but. Um, you 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 know you get good ideas when you're in a warm and comfortable place. Uh, of course, if you're physically naked, you tend to be more emotionally uninhibited, so that might help as well. But uh, I've written down some really cool ideas in the shower. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, not only you know everyone's had that experience where they had a great idea, they repeated it four or five times, and as soon as they open the door to the shower, the idea is gone. And that's frustrating because a you might have lost a good idea, but b it's just frustrating to lose ideas. Like, it, you know, you feel like you're being an idiot or something. Right. You, you know what's even even more interesting to me about this uh, than the technology is kind of how you have these these dots connect in a way that you, you couldn't have predicted uh, from all of these things. And you may have read this article. Stephen Johnson wrote this on Medium called The Spark File. And, and he said he can trace – he always writes down everything. He could trace back every creative project, everything he'd ever done to random ideas that he'd jotted down. And you know, I, I shared this example with some of you listening uh, who were at our, our event, the Instigator Experience. Uh, you know, I went back. It was really weird because we were on stage and, and you know, we were, I think we were on the second day of the event. And I, I opened up my, uh, my Instagram and 44 weeks ago, there was – in writing uh, a note from my notebook that I took a picture of said location ideas for the instigator experience. And here we were at the actual thing I was just envisioning on a piece of paper 44 weeks ago. Yeah, that's pretty cool, right? (laughs) 
it really, you know, and, and so I think there, there's so much power in, in kind of what you're talking about. So let me ask you this. I mean, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that people are, are going to sit here and listen, it, they're going to hear all this valuable information and, and, you know, they're going to think that their lives are going to change overnight possibly by listening to this. But I know that there is an entire journey uh, here of struggle um, and challenges. What I'm really curious about are, are sort of the tipping points, the things where things really, the, the moments when things really started to change, and the, and the moments that you felt were sort of fundamental ones um, throughout this process of leading you to where you're at today. Well, you know, it, it sounds superficial in some ways, but email is an incredible thing for people to conquer, and <laughs> it's it's weird because so for me, I, I am like straight up inbox zero all the time. I have some processes in place so that no matter what happens, no matter if I, if I went into a coma for a year, I would never have more than 10 emails in my inbox. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean I'm not going to get thousands of emails, but I would never have more than 10 in my inbox. And the inbox is a place of action and, and zen as it, it, it should be. So email is one of the most incredible, free, accessible tools for productivity that exists on the planet today. And the problem is that a lot of people have a very adversarial relationship with email and either they get to a point where there's, you know, 3000 emails in their inbox and they basically give up and then that's just the way it is. Or they are just constantly stressed about, did I contact this person? Did they get back to me? Did I get back to them? Like it just, it's a really, it's one of those things that it's the, the razor's edge. It can be the worst thing or the best thing. So for me, if you can tackle your email and get that into a place where it's productive then you can start routing a lot more stuff through your email, which mm-hmm. is great because email is searchable. It's written. You can archive things the way you want. You can forward things to people who can handle them. You can do a lot of things with an email once you get to a good place, basically. So I am a really big proponent of starting there. Uh, you know, I, I route as much as I possibly can through my email now, whether it's voicemails, uh, scheduling requests, reading things, looking at, you know, as much as I can do in email, it makes it so that you're not actually multitasking because email becomes the task. Mm -hmm. Email becomes the thing that you get good at. And then you can really accomplish a lot more from a lot of different places. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I think that's the first time I've ever heard anybody have such a sort of positive (laughs) take on on your inbox. Yeah. Really, really cool. Uh, well, let me ask you this. I mean, so out of all of this, I know there have been some external byproducts. I mean, you've mentioned a book. I know that you're a speaker at, at TED, uh, you know, and that, that's how Clay kind of, you know, referred me to you. Talk to me about some of the external byproducts of, of doing all of this work and what it's led to in your life. Well, so I, <laughs> I've become a teacher that I never thought I'd be. Um, I, I, it's so weird how circular things can become. I, originally wanted to teach a class through Skillshare, which, you know, used to be, uh, in-person classes, uh, primarily. And, uh, I wanted to teach a class to hone the content of less doing because I felt like I wanted to write a book. And this was, you know, four years ago or something when we were just, I was just starting out and I hadn't even created all nine fundamentals. I had like two, but of course I'm like, I'm gonna write a book. Um, so I, I did my first class and it went well, but it's funny looking back, it was something completely different than what it is now. And I got great feedback and I, I worked on it. And then I started teaching more and really enjoying it and really developing the content more and better as people were giving me their feedback. 
And I ended up teaching the class like 40-something times and becoming one of the Skillshare's top New York City teachers, which is something I never expected. Then I took the courses online to Udemy. So now I have three courses on Udemy. I have the Less Doing course. I have the Gmail, IFTTT, and um, Virtual Assistant course. And then I also have a biohacking course. So once it got online like that, then it was scalable. You know, then I was waking up in the morning and, you know, 15 people took my class last night and it was amazing. And that led to a whole bunch of other things. So I was doing other teaching, other speaking engagements. I was able to say to people, you know, check out the course and you'll kind of get what it's about. And then I started doing the podcast and trying to get more and more content out there and really experimenting. Every day I'm experimenting. In fact, I have two articles ready that I need, well, that I need to write about something that I just came to me and actually, honestly, it came to me in the bathtub yesterday. <laughs> um, and I, oddly enough, I don't have Aquanotes in the bathtub. So it was one of those rare situations where I was like repeating it out loud and I actually made a song so that I could remember what I was thinking of. Um, <laughs> I have the Aquanotes in the shower, but not the bathtub. So the thing about the course that's so great for me is that that was really the basis for the book because in all the outsourcing I've ever done, which is hundreds or you know, thousands of things I've outsourced, the two times that I had really bad experiences were when I tried to have a ghostwriter put together an ebook on less doing. So the first two times uh, they did it, and the, the first one was just really not very good quality. And the second time was, was uh, I believe, the person outsourced it even further, and, the, and it was just not what I would ask asking for. But I firmly believe, and this is why I try to teach the skill to people, I believe that if you give something to a competent outsource provider and they make a mistake that is usually your fault mm -hmm. because you didn't accurately describe the task or provide the information. And that's, that's really the skill that I try to get people to, to learn. So I believe that in that case. So I, but I, I kind of let it go. And then I took another approach because the first time what I said was like, read these nine blog posts that I wrote and this article that I wrote for Mashable and listen to these three podcasts that I did and put together something cohesive, you know, which is not great, honestly. So the last time I got somebody and I said, take my online course mm -hmm. and write a cohesive ebook based on that. And that ebook was the manuscript that became the basis for me to then write the actual book. Cause she nailed it the first time she got it right. And I realized that I had just framed it incorrectly mm -hmm. because because in the course, I'm, it's a video of me talking the way that I talk and the way that I teach and the way that I want to give this information out. And from that, she was able to really see the passion, I guess, and see what I was trying to do and write something that actually made sense. And then that gave me an actual framework and an outline because I don't consider myself to be a particularly good writer. It's really hard for me to write. So having this like really good outline and this really good perspective from someone else made it so that I could actually write the book. Wow. Really, really mind blowing stuff. Um, well, all right, this is this has actually been amazing. I, I mean, I've learned so much talking to you in just an hour, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of this that I'm going to be putting into to to action myself. And I'm guessing our listeners are going to probably be doing the same. Uh, so I'm going to close with my final question, and, and this is something that I've asked a lot of people. Uh, you know, we live uh, in a very, very noisy world, which uh, I think is funny since you talk about the art of less doing. And, uh, you know, the question I always close with, you know, our show is called The Unmistakable Creative. And in, in a world of this much noise, how do you become unmistakable? So when I work with people on goals and 
goal setting, everybody sets goals that are too big <laughs> and, and usually unrealistic and usually make no sense. Uh, my favorite one is when somebody tells me that they want to sell their company for X amount of dollars in X number of years. Mm-hmm. Because sure, maybe you'll get there. But if you exceed that, that's in a way something got messed up along the way, I believe. Yeah. You know, it's not simply that you just got lucky and did better. Something did not go according to plan. So that's a stupid plan. <laughs> Basically, my definition of success is that if I'm better today in any way than I was yesterday, mm-hmm. that then I'm successful. So rather than setting these huge goals and these long-term ways of achieving things, just be better in every way you possibly can right now. Be present. Do the things that you want to do and that you can do and that you are good at and do those really, really, really well and magic comes out. Awesome. Well, all right. Like I said, uh, I have learned so much talking to you. This has been a really eye-opening conversation and uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your insights with our listeners here at The Unmistakable Creative. Well, thank you. That was honestly one of the most fun conversations I've had in a very long time. Awesome. And uh, for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. You've been listening to the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. Visit our website at unmistakablecreative.com and get access to over 400 interviews in our archives. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. 
This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.